the murder mystery podcast. The story unfolds each week. Will you guess the killer? On the murder mystery podcast, it's The Parisian Contract. Episode 23. Olivia reaches street level from the bowels of the metro system, walks to Rue de Saucer, and into the reception area of the police judiciaire. Capitaine Ferrand, please, she says to the desk sergeant. He is out of the building, madame. When will he be back? I can't say he's called out earlier, says the policewoman. And now he's back, says a voice behind her. She spins round. Capitaine. Mademoiselle. I have some evidence that I would like to give you. On which of the many cases you seem to be part of, mademoiselle? A new one, Captain. Number four, he says. They go to an interview room and Olivia puts a USB stick on the table. Ferreau gets coffees, sits down opposite her and relaxes back in his chair. Glenthrow Holdings, she says. Multinational conglomerate. Have you heard of it? Non, he says, and writes in a notebook in front of him. I have evidence here that they've been involved with illegal arms exports. Ferreau leans forward and picks up the USB. You know this how? I'm counsel acting on behalf of Montgomery Mining to help defend a hostile bid from Glenthrow for a target in South Africa called Alpha, she says. Glenthrow bid two times value, and there is evidence on that stick that proves that they had insider knowledge of the Montgomery bid and the funding structure. I thought you said arms exporting just now. Two men have been killed in the last ten days who are connected to Glenthrow. David Malneath, their CEO, and Max Strachan, my company's CFO. The insider trading is just one part of Glenthrow's illegal activity. Max was investigating them of his own accord. Maybe he knew they would be making a bid. I don't know. But I think he discovered evidence of the arms shipments and they killed him for it. And Malneath, why did he die? Perhaps he was not aware of the arms trades but found out? If I remember your friend in hospital, Grace Hartford, she works for Glenthrow too, doesn't she? says Ferrer. She does, but she's not involved. How do you know that? Olivia pauses. In her mind, Grace doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the suspects. She seems too innocent, not someone who could keep a secret for very long. I don't have any evidence on Grace, she says eventually. These are serious accusations, mademoiselle. I am presenting evidence to you, Captain, not accusations. I am handing this to you, without prejudice, so that you can investigate. The policeman nods in acknowledgement and sits for a minute, lost in his own thoughts and reading his notes. The light from two windows, set high up in the side wall of the room, create rectangles of brightness on the ceiling. The noise of the city is muted by the architecture around them. Olivia checks her watch and wonders whether Rue de Gert 
holds the key to the kidnap of Camille. She is itching to get away, but respects Ferro's time to understand the gravity of what she is giving him. Okay, he says eventually. Let me get one of my team in here, and I'd like you to go through the detail with them. We'll open an investigation. She smiles. Thank you, Capitaine. An hour later, Olivia slams out of the police building and into the street. Time is moving on. She has one more thing to do before meeting Jean-Luc at 3pm. She hails a cab and clambers in. Almost immediately, her phone rings. She checks the screen. It is Guy calling. Hello, she says. Hey, how are you? Good. What can I do for you? says Olivia. I wanted to tell you that I'm going away. Soon? Today. Anywhere nice? She immediately regrets asking. Just a plan coming together, he says. What about you? Jean-Luc and I are on the trail of Camille. Oh? Yes, there's a place I discovered that may be connected. We're visiting later. Where's that? South of Paris, she says. Need any help? She considers his change of tone, given that a minute ago he was all about going away. Can he be trusted? She pauses, considering the events and the conversations between the two of them over the last week. Is he hiding anything? Her lawyer's brain assesses the balance of evidence. Why don't you come down with us? It's in Clamart, she says. They chat for a minute longer, then ring off as her taxi arrives, at Rue Montorgueil. Olivia walks up the road and presses the button above the name Malneath on the brass panel beside the portico. She steps back from the doorway and waits for a response. Madame Malneath appears on the other side of the door, then opens it. She has been crying, Olivia can see. Madame Malneath, I'm Olivia Street. I have information about your husband. Can I come in? They go up a staircase and into the living space of the flat. It is full of light. A large kitchen of white units dominates the near end of the room. An enormous sofa and three beautiful chairs sit to one side, and the patio, where Richard had sat when he visited, adds another room to the vastness. They walk to the sofa, Madame Malneath indicates for Olivia to sit and settles herself into one of the chairs opposite. I'm a lawyer, madame, Olivia begins. I work for a company that has been helping a client of ours with an acquisition. Which company do you work for, Miss Street? Her voice is velvet smooth. Carlisle Banking. The woman asks no more, and after a pause... Olivia continues. Glenthrow Holdings made a hostile bid for our target, and there seems to be evidence of insider trading. Are you accusing my husband? No, I believe he was innocent. Was? asks Madame Malneath. An emotional wave runs the length of Olivia's body as she remembers that the woman doesn't know about her husband's death. Olivia considers, then rejects the idea of breaking the news. She'll leave that to Ferrand. 
and she ignores the question. I don't believe your husband was involved at all, continues Olivia. But I do know that now he has gone missing. She stops and waits for any emotional reaction. He's away on business, Mademoiselle Street. Have you been in contact with him? What my husband and I do is none of your concern, Mademoiselle. I didn't mean to pry, says Olivia. What I really wanted to say is that I know you have a controlling interest in Glenthrow Holdings, through the family arrangement put in place by your late father-in-law. That's a matter of public record, yes. Do you have any executive powers through your shareholding? asks Olivia. No, again, it's a matter of public record. My shares are financial, not voting. I hold no executive powers. Did you meet Richard Carlyle? You have done your research, mademoiselle. What did you discuss? says Olivia, keeping her pace steady, as she has learnt to do in court. Richard is an old friend, says Madame Malneath. He was concerned about someone who worked for him, someone called Max something. Concerned in what way? The man had disappeared, and Richard knew he had been in touch with my husband. Richard wanted to know if I knew any more. I didn't. Olivia can't work out why Richard kept this secret from her, if it was just an innocent inquiry about an old friend. Madame, apologies, I'm in a hurry, but one more thing, says Olivia. I wanted to tell you that the police are going to investigate your husband's disappearance. As I said, he hasn't disappeared. Nevertheless, they will be in touch, says Olivia. The woman is silent. Olivia gets up to leave, and Madame Malneath doesn't make a move to continue the conversation. Can I give you my card? The woman accepts it without a word. Once she's back on the street, Olivia realises she has an hour before she is due to meet Jean-Luc. She decides to walk from the Malneath apartment to the Montgomery offices. She walks in parallel to the river and arrives at the Tuileries after ten minutes. She heads north to the far end of the gardens and slows her pace to give herself time to think through where she has got on the case. She needs to urgently answer some of the thousand questions in her head. Most of the Glenthrow aspects seem to be sorted out. She believes now that the company has been involved with various black market activities for some time particularly arms trading. It's not clear, yet, what the role of Conaghan Industries is from the notes in Max's papers. What was Max making notes about? Had he been in a meeting where Conaghan was discussed? Or had Malneath told him about it, and as a consequence, they had both been killed? She feels she is close, but there are at least one or two vital pieces of information missing. She isn't sure if Madame Malneath is as innocent as she appears. Possibly the woman knows exactly what has been going on and lied earlier. Olivia hopes that Ferrand will explore that aspect of the case, as it strays into French criminal law, which she isn't an expert in. Then she thinks about Jean-Luc. Was he involved with the Glenthrow bid? He denied it but Olivia now knows he is prone to be economical with the truth. 
It is a possibility that he is corrupt, and, if that is true, Carlyle's needs to withdraw their services from Montgomery or risk being damaged. She makes a mental note to talk to Richard about that, then wonders how he is, given what he said when they met over breakfast. Guy is a different challenge. What is the plan, he mentioned, that he is involved with? Is his unexpected departure connected to the alphabet in some way? What did Guy and Grace discuss when Olivia had seen them outside the Glenthrow offices a week ago? Marianne may be right to think that he isn't all he says he is. A man who is in some sort of role in British embassies around the world, now happy to just be a high-level helper in the world of business. Her phone buzzes with a message. She pulls out the device and reads from the screen. It's from Francine. Just to let you know, Richard is going on sick leave for a while, and the board is appointing me as acting CEO this afternoon, it says. He has been overdoing it, sadly, and needs a good rest. Best. F. Francine has lost all credibility in Olivia's view, and she knows that there's more to this news than meets the eye. She calls Richard's mobile, but there's no answer. She leaves a voicemail, asking him to call her back urgently. Sophie lays on the bed, her eyes closed, trying to rest after the last few days. Each day she has learnt something new about her husband, and none of it has been good. Before Camille disappeared, their life had been halcyon. She had trusted her husband, and thought him to be generally honest. Now he doesn't seem like the man she has known for two decades. She can understand not mentioning selling pills in his twenties, as he would have thought it was part of the past. But the other things, not telling her about the blackmail and getting hold of a gun, those are different. That says to her that he is a man who has a secretive streak that she has never seen before. Now she is less sure than she was about his innocence two years ago, when he was accused of embezzlement. The sound of the doorbell is an unwelcome interruption. She gets up slowly and saunters downstairs. She's not expecting anyone and thinks it must be a parcel. She opens the door. A woman in her forties is standing there. Well-dressed, obviously a woman of money and taste. Can I help? says Sophie. Are you Sophie Dubois? What can I do for you? Could I come in? asks the woman. Could you tell me what it's about first? Your husband, actually, says the woman. What about him? I'd rather not talk on the doorstep. Sophie's eyes narrow. If it's something about work, then you're better off contacting his office. It's not about his work. It's about you. I thought you said it was about my husband, says Sophie, getting frustrated. It's about the both of you. Sorry, I'm confused now. You'll need to hear this, says the woman. Like I said, if it is concerning my husband, then please go to his offices. If it's about my business, then you can email me. She picks up a business card from the hall table 
and hands it to the woman. Thank you, says Sophie brightly, and starts to shut the door. I'm his mistress, says the woman. Behind the door, Sophie closes her eyes for what seems like forever. Whiteness appears around her knuckles as she grasps the door handle harder. She feels as though she has taken all she can. She waits while a tide of emotion crosses her heart, then pulls the door open. Can I come in? says Constance. Sophie opens the door wider, and Constance steps through into the hallway. They go to the lounge. It has cool blue seating, with two long low tables between. They walk to the far end of the room and sit on opposing chairs, symmetrically each side of a large oriel window that commands a view of the trees beyond. Why would I believe you? says Sophie. Ask Jean, Constance fires back. What do you want? To warn you. About what? He's in deep trouble. Like what? Sophie is as cold as winter. Corruption? Blackmail? Illegal trading? Sophie can feel her heart beating in desolation. She hangs on to the thoughts of her daughter and her business, the things she can depend on, as the quicksand of her life tries to engulf her again. Do you have proof? I can get proof if that's what you want, says Constance. What do you want? Sophie repeats. That depends. Sophie says nothing and raises one eyebrow. It depends on whether you think he is worth saving. Saving from what? From himself. Constance is direct to the point of discomfort. A lawyer's privilege. Sophie starts to genuinely try and answer the question in her own mind. It shocks her to discover that she doesn't automatically think that, yes, he is worth saving. You're not surprised, I can see. Not an idea that is completely out of the question for you, Sophie. Constance's advantage of knowing what the conversation was going to be about is ebbing away. Sophie is accelerating fast to get on equal footing. She considers the pros and cons of engaging with this woman, or just dismissing her as some crazy person. After a minute, Sophie says, No, it doesn't surprise me. The admission lifts a weight from her shoulders like a bird in flight. A wave of relief, then a wave of sadness at the truth then a wave of surprise, that the sadness was so transitory. "'What can we do?' asks Sophie. "'I thought you would ask me what he's been doing.' "'I'm not sure the details are the important thing.' "'You accept his corruption?' "'I know that he has been, and potentially still is, involved with people who are criminals. "'Yes.' "'You know more than I gave you credit for,' says Constance." I have known him for twenty years, madame. The lights in her eyes returning after the earlier onslaught. The women look deep into each other for a second, then both look away at the prospect of too much honesty, too soon. We agree to do something about it, 
Then, says Constance, I am happy to hear your ideas. The women talk on for an hour, considering different ways in which they might intervene. Sophie is shocked at how well Constance knows her husband's personality at first, but she gets over it. Constance is shocked at how much Sophie has accepted that her marriage isn't perfect, but she doesn't get over it. Their conversation slows, and Constance makes a move to leave. Sophie shows her the door. How long have you been two years? says Constance, interrupting her. Do you love him? Not as much as he loves me, says Constance. And she steps out into the Parisian afternoon.